The Hill Talks, a podcast by The Hilltop. Hello, hello. I'm Juan Ben Jr., your host, bringing you three stories you need to know. Coming from the nation's oldest black collegiate newspaper, this week we're talking rankings, renovations, and sanctions. So without further ado, let's get into it. U.S. News and World Report ranks the best colleges and universities in the nation. Howard University held the number 89 spot last year within the top 100, but the report's latest set of rankings positions university at 115, 26 spots from where it sat previously. Campus reporter Kaya Craig joins me to talk about it. Kaya, I have to be honest, this news shocked me a little bit when it came out. What has the reaction been like on campus? I think a lot of people felt the exact same way, just really shocked about the ranking, especially the 115th place. A lot of students were not expecting that, just given the fact that Howard is so notable. When you tell people you attend Howard, it's it's considered very prestigious, not only in the Black community, but just in general. So I think a lot of students were definitely taken aback by that. Has the university said anything in its defense? Yeah, so I actually spoke to Dr. Wuta, who is the provost and then the chief academic officer, and he discussed the fact that this year U.S. News used a different ranking system and they changed up their metrics a little bit, which definitely affected Howard's ranking, and that's why we saw such a visible drop in rank. But he also told me that that doesn't affect Howard in general. The measures that they're taking to increase graduation rates and just just things like that for students making things run smoothly have been increasing so if anything the rank just does not show all of the changes the beneficial changes the university has been making president vincent he released a statement as well saying that you know we're still focused on the howard way so the drop in ratings may not change how howard operates but has the news changed in in any way how students think about the school So I actually did not get that from the students that I have talked to. Students were surprised to see the ranking, but ultimately it doesn't change their perception of the school. I mean, as somebody who's involved in campus, who attends the actual school, you are the one who sees everything that is going on. A lot of students, they have mental notes of that. And so the ranking did not change their opinions and views on Howard. Kaya Craig, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Construction is something you get used to living in Washington, D.C. Howard University's campus is certainly no stranger to trucks, cranes, and excavators. In fact, one of the school's most iconic buildings, Founders Library, is getting a facelift. But some students say that they are forced to dining halls and empty classrooms to study. Two more of our campus reporters are here to discuss what's going on. Jana, Esther, if someone was to walk onto the yard right now and turn and look at Founders Library, what would they see? You would see signs telling us that it's not open, that it's closed until further notice. That famous South Tower, you know, you can barely see the clock. It's just all scaffolding. And at some points, there was even caution tape around the front of it. It looks like one big project. Let's talk about the project. What are they doing right now to founders? So right now, there's a lot of water damage repair from the building being so historical. New lighting, painting, restored wood paneling, new carpet. So there's tons of construction going on on all levels of the library right now. 
Founders Library, I mean, it's just one of four main libraries on campus. We have HSL, UGL, and so on, but its quiet nature and small private desks and stacks make it a pretty unique study space on campus. Has its closure caused any concerns for students? 100%. I think, you know, anybody who's already been on campus, upperclassmen, you know, we have our spot that we may like to study. Freshmen, they're coming to campus and they haven't been able to experience what is the quietness, the stillness of founders that, that many people who need that quiet to study have experienced. I know that a lot of the freshmen that we talked to, they were kind of feeling like Howard was unprepared when they came on campus, that some of these things could have possibly been done throughout the summer. So many people are affected by it not being open because it means that every other library is overcrowded and it's just not really the same atmosphere to get work done in. I mean, I'm certainly one of those upperclassmen where I had my spot that I liked and Founders was that spot for sure. I would go there for online classes that I had that had a quick turnaround for an in-person class that I needed to find a quiet space to do in. And you wrote about in your story how some students are resorting to hallways or even the cafe just to log on for class or to even study. And so with that, I wonder, has the university responded to student concerns about the limited study space on campus? Not in particular. I think that with HSL opening back up, you could say that, you know, they're being mindful. And so now all of the libraries are closed at this time. But it's hard to say if that was intentional or if that just so happened to be the schedule of construction. But as of right now, there's not really been a direct response to student concern about the library being closed. We don't have a future date for when founders may be back open. Jana, Esther, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. usually hear about them in the news, sanctions, but some may struggle to understand what economic sanctions are and why the U.S. or any country might use them. Shreya Gautam, business columnist at The Hilltop, is here to break it down and tell us how there might be more to sanctions domestically than most people think. Shreya, I want to ask if you can just put this in context for us. How big of a role does the U.S. dollar play in the global economy? U.S. dollar like has sovereignty in the global economy 100%. All of the international trade happens in the U.S. dollars, um, so big real estate trades, commodities like oil. If the U.S. dollar is getting stronger in the world, other local currencies are probably getting weaker. Then also, U- United States of America itself, they play a huge role in controlling like monetary policies. And they also like have a huge impact on like IMF and the World Bank. And they give loans, grants, and they kind of like, control trades in the economy of other countries, especially like developing countries. So the US like just has the upper hand. It's like definitely uh, affects every small, every big, every international, almost like local trades in the world too. So. And so with that, I wonder if you can just explain what a sanction is and why the U.S. wants to place sanctions on on any country. So why the uh, U.S. or even any other country would want to place sanctions on other businesses and even countries is because they want to almost restrict the trade that the other country or businesses are having, or they want to like coerce them into changing their behavior, changing their policies. If you want to talk about Iran, for example, the reason why they placed sanctions on Iran in the first place was so that they could influence the nuclear air missile project that they had. And it was also for concerns for the like, human rights issues. They essentially wanted to achieve was that they would place these sanctions on Iran or on any other countries 
And because the sanctions would make it hard for the middle class people, working class people to get around, it would lead people to rise up against the government there and like change the behavior and change the policies inside of that country. They would just like dismantle whatever was going on inside of the country. And that's essentially what they wanted to do with these sanctions. Have we seen actual change happen because of sanctions? Do they work? Honestly, it depends on how you describe successful. If we're talking from a more economic standpoint or on a more policy-based standpoint, yes, we have achieved that. If we talk about the sanctions against Iran during the Obama administration, it basically led way to the Iran nuclear deal. Because like all these sanctions were placed on Iran and it was like hard uh, for them to get raw materials to produce anything inside of the country. What essentially led them to the deal was that the U.S. would loosen the sanctions it had on Iran. And in exchange of that, Iran would be more transparent about its missions. And they also let the international inspectors like negotiate with Iran. So the sanctions basically led to a peaceful talk and led them into a deal. And so even with that, though, when a country places sanctions upon another country or a business or a person, the whole goal is to kind of restrict the resources of this country so that people have to think about the choices that they're making in terms of spending money, or even the country has to figure out or change the way that they operate as a country in terms of the business and trade. But we're restricting resources so people may not have access to healthcare or medicines. And so I wonder, how does the U.S. justify that they're placing these sanctions on this country, either because of humanitarian abuses or because they want to influence policy at the same time they may cause a humanitarian crisis in another country so this is like something that i did want to discuss sanctions are supposed to be temporary so they're supposed to temporarily cause like some disruption some instability inside of the country so that it leads to a change but then what we have seen so far has not been the same these sanctions on cuba they've lasted like seven decades right they say that it's temporary and they want to cause this instability, like that's on purpose. It's kind of ironic that you are placing these sanctions because of humanitarian issues while you're causing more humanitarian issues inside of the country. And also, many of the times, the sanctions are placed because they pose like a, a threat to the national security of the U.S. For Iran, for North Korea, for Russia, like the war, it was all a threat to national and international security. And that's why they happened. You talked about irony there. I mean, let's talk about how ironic it is even too that sometimes when the U.S. places sanctions upon another country, it even causes issues in this country, in the U.S. You had a couple conversations with a few people who shared their stories and shared their experiences about how sanctions have caused some struggles for them. And I wonder if you can just share a bit about their stories. I did talk to international students and Cuban migrant workers. In the case of these international students, um, they were really struggling on going back home and visiting their families because the airfare ticket prices are so high. I think if you look at the round trip to Nepal right now, it's like $2,400. And uh, that's partly because of the Russia-Ukraine war and the sanctions that have been placed on them. And they also mentioned the foreign exchange rate. So that meant that uh, if their family were paying for the tuition and even when they moved here, it was just like very hard and very expensive. And in the case of the Cuban migrant worker, he talked to me about how it was like very hard for him to send money to his sick mother, to his family that were relying on him as a sole breadwinner of the family because of the, all these sanctions that the U.S. has placed on him. So he's finding different ways on how he can possibly do that. Shreya Gautam, The Hilltop, thank you so much for breaking this very complex <laughs> topic down for us. Like you said, a lot of people feel the effects of sanctions 
even if they don't really know it. And this was an important story that you told today. So I appreciate you for joining me. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of The Hill Talks. Our theme music is by my friend, Terry Thomas. Thank you so much, Terry, for blessing our listeners with your great beats. This episode was written, edited, and produced by me, but none of it would have been possible if it wasn't for the hard work of our reporters at The Hilltop. Special thanks to Jana, Esther, Kaya, and Sharia for joining me today. You can check out their stories and more by visiting thehilltoponline.com. We'll be back next week with an all-new episode. This is where I leave you. Till next time, Bison.